you want to turn with me to 2 Timothy, we have been teaching for several weeks now on the pastoral epistles, and we are working through them line upon line. We've been very good, thankfully, at finishing a chapter every night, every Wednesday. And uh, maybe I could slow down, but I, I like aiming for this. Certainly, we could start over again in a few weeks once we get through Titus and go through it all again, and something totally different would come out with every chapter, but we're not going to. We'll move on to something else. We've been looking at Timothy and Timothy, First and Second Timothy. These are epistles written to Paul's son in the faith, young Timothy, a pastor, Paul's most precious son in the faith, as he said so himself. Also, Timothy was left or appointed as the pastor over Ephesus. And it sounds like from First Timothy, Paul uh, had to kind of twist Timothy's arm into it. We have looked at how Timothy was a little bit of a mama's boy. Nothing wrong with mamas, nothing wrong with boys. And I understand there are single mamas, and that's all right too, but don't raise your boy to be a mama's boy. And if you have uh, maybe taken your temperature and realize you're a mama's boy, I have good news for you. You can grow up. It's possible to grow a beard and be a mama's boy. And so we are seeing that uh, Timothy didn't want to be a mama's boy. He wanted to be like Paul. There's no record of his daddy. That is Timothy's daddy. His grandmamas talked about, and his mamas talked about, and they put a faith in him. Uh, they just didn't put any masculinity in him. So Paul's coming along, and you know, <laughs> you know Timothy wants to be a man because when, when Paul says, if you're going to travel with me, we need to circumcise you. Now, I get accused of being a cult leader because I tell people to quit sinning. It's amazing. Anytime I confront somebody on fornication, they leave and call me a cult leader. And I guess what you're used to is just the freedom of the bars where they encourage you to fornicate. But you want to talk about maybe cultish is when your discipler looks at you and says, if you're going to travel with me and we're going to be in the synagogues, we need to do a little bit of surgery. How do you still feel called, son? <laughs> and we covered John Mark. John Mark didn't even have to do that. He just had to do the pots and pans and underwear. He's like, I quit. So John Mark might have been a little bit more masculine, but he was a dainty fool. And here we got Timothy. He's a mama's boy. He needs encouragement. But if, if Paul says, we're going to do a little bit of surgery, and he's like, can I have a little wine for my often stomach infirmity? <laughs> you could see he wanted to be like his spiritual father. He wanted to travel with him, and he would do whatever it takes to help Paul preach the gospel. Apparently, that's what a cult is anymore, is just doing whatever it takes to preach the gospel. And so we saw a lot of encouragement for Timothy in 1 Timothy, a lot of encouragement in 2 Timothy chapter 1. That's the famous passage there. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Written to Timothy because he's still fighting timidity. Paul goes on to say, you're going to suffer persecution. Don't, hey, look, look at me, Paul or Timothy. I suffer. If I can do it, you can do it. There's nothing different between me and you but the grace of God. And so we, we have this encouragement constantly being breathed into Timothy. And what I believe, because I've pastored long enough now, is to know this. Paul doesn't have a problem doing it because it apparently works. And there's nothing wrong with giving courage over and over again as long as it works. But at some point, if it quits working, you quit wasting time. And please understand, God loves you. His mercies are new every morning, but he's not going to waste time. And either you take the word of God and you grow with it, or at some point, God moves on a little bit and lets you hang out and suffer till your heart cries out and says, God, come back. 
Now, that may sound harsh because you grew up seeker-friendly or maybe on your mama's apron strings, but think about the ministry of Jesus Christ. They said, Jesus, we want to follow you. He said, all right, come on. And then he went. And either they went or they didn't. And he never stopped and went back and begged for them. He said, if you want to see where I live, come follow me. He didn't beg them time and time again and time and time again and time and time again. In fact, the Bible says something really harsh about Jesus. It says he would commit himself to no man, for he knew what was in man. Now, thankfully, there's a balance that says, and he loved them, for he knew God had given them from the beginning, and he would lose none of them. So there were some he invested in, but there were others he just would not waste his time on. Sometimes he, let me, I'll follow you. Let me go bury my father. And Jesus would say, what is that to me? The modern interpretation, I don't care. I'm about my father's business. Now, we've been lied to a little bit, trying to feel seeker-friendly, feely, feely good. Is that, oh, there, there, little backslider. Jesus loves you, and he understands you, and, and he just wants to be there for you. Like, okay, let me tell you about the Jesus with fire in his eyes, two-edged sword in his mouth, who condemns sin, and he's commanding you to repent. Remember the message Jesus was introduced with? This is my, okay, so you go to the Gospels because that's where you should. Start in the beginning, because you should. And we're introduced to a man named John the Baptist. And he's baptizing in the wilderness at Jordan. And his message that he opens up with, because you know he went to all the church growth seminars, was, repent, for there's a man coming after me whose shoes I'm not even worthy to unlatch it. And I baptize you with water, he's going to burn you with fire. Behold, the axe is laid at the root. And he's going to hack down people who don't bear fruit and burn them with unquenchable fire. That's how John introduced Huggy Jesus. And he grew crowds. And he dunked them. And then they cut his head off. And then Jesus healed their sick. And then they crucified him. So forgive me if I have zero respect for mega churches with 40 campuses who promote Barbie or Toy Story or the roller coaster church we saw a couple weeks ago. I mean, it's blasphemous, but it'll grow a big building. Actually, Pastor Obongofongo Kwokwo from Nigeria just sent me a meme, and it said, a church with a, ni a nice sound system but no sound doctrine is just a civic auditorium. It's a civic center. It's an arena. Pretty good wisdom coming out of Nigeria. So let's get into the word of 2 Timothy chapter 3. This know also, verse 1, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Uh, Josh, go ahead and throw this up on the New Living Translation. I'm going to read this through the NLT and through the King James simultaneously. So the NLT will be behind me here. There's some pretty... Uh, good translations or good verses that come out in the NLT. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. What a huggy verse. <laughs> I've learned this as a pastor. You can cherry pick the scriptures and lie to people. You can cherry pick them and tell them every day of Tuesday, every day of Friday, your best Thursday ever. Or you can be honest and say like Paul did, I haven't refused to give you the whole counsel of God's word. We're raising our children. We're, we're not uh, sheltering them. We're preparing them. 
and we're preparing them for sin. We're preparing them for uh, persecution. We're preparing them to clean their room and have a budget. We're preparing them to take care of their bodies because life isn't easy. And I do recognize that the reason some churches get big is because there's nothing but a feel-good message delivered every week, and I call those methadone clinics because it only addicts them to a feel-good but doesn't ever teach them responsibility. So here we have a pastor or an apostle telling a young pastor, I want you to know it's going to get worse. That's reality. And this is a prophetic word from God Almighty by the Holy Ghost to the Apostle Paul. And there isn't a feel-good. There are feel-good words in Timothy sometimes. And in the gospel, sure. But what about the reality of life? If you know the Bible from a higher perspective or from a, a, a higher elevation, you also know that though these things are true, we are more than conquerors. We will have persecution, but be of good cheer. He's overcome this world. Our faith is the victory. We are well able. So the only reason you have to preach a feel-good message every service is because you have a daycare. And the kingdom is supposed to be an army, not a nursery. But some Christians prefer a nursery. They want to be lied to. They want to be entertained. They don't ever want to be confronted. And it really is unfortunate. So back to the NLT, chapter 3, verse 1. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. King James says perilous times. The, the, the Greek says days without power, as in you'll have no power, no strength, no ability. For people will love only themselves and their money. Now, 12 or so years ago, Rick Renner, Pastor Rick Renner, who's a great American missionary to Russia, probably one of the closest things the Word of Faith movement has to a theologian, great Greek scholar. He was teaching this. Somebody sent me the, the notes, and they said, this, think about it. This is 12 years ago. Smartphones have really taken off. Selfies. And remember in those years, all the women did what we call duck face. You know, whether they were 65 years old or 16 years old, they did duck face. And Rick Renner, being a preacher, observing this, he said the Greek here literally means self-kissing. And, and in those years, again, 12, 13 years ago, all the women, their selfies were, you know, duck face, pout face, sucking spaghetti face. All it is is narcissism. It's, it's you consumed of yourself. And so duck face has evolved into social media and selfies. That really wasn't a term back then. Into selfies and, and really just self-promoted self -promoted narcissism. And that was prophesied. Not that the selfie was, but the whole self-consuming. They will only love themselves uh, and their money. And really, self-love and love of money drives social media. And it's a shallow existence, and God has designed you for better and bigger than that. They will be boastful and proud. And that, that well... That's social media as well. You take a thousand pictures, edit the one that looks good, and then put that up there, though there's no reality to it. Uh, but we can move away from social media and just talk about a generation where we're boastful and proud. Our former president, running for president again, may be one of the most braggadocious, boastful morons I've ever heard in my entire life. And not that he's the worst, but he's pretty symbolic of what most of our nation stands for. Every election, our, whoever we cough up to run for president is pretty representative of our nation. With, with, with Trump and Hillary, it was two old 
pagans, Trump and Hillary, who were proud. She was a mean Jezebel from the 60s, and he was a braggadocious, money-chasing sex fiend. Sounds like America. And then we had Trump and Biden, two old white dudes. And we'll stop there. And who knows what we're going to cough up this election because it won't be much worth bragging about. But we're looking for a kingdom whose king is coming soon. Of the increase of that kingdom, there shall be no end. Until then, we just have to look at the mirror that is our political system and see this is how God sees us. Because these are our representatives. We vote to say, that's who I want. Which is why it gets harder and harder to vote. My friend Kerry Gordon says, voting for the lesser of two evils is still voting for evil. And then I recently saw Jerry Garcia said the same thing 30 years ago. You know who Jerry Garcia is, right? Grateful Dead. Flexing my hippie muscle right there. I look pretty good tonight, but I am a recovering hippie and a recovering Baptist. I was a hippie Baptist. <laughs> Scoffing at God. Yep. I remember President Trump said, I don't have to repent of anything. What have I done wrong? Remember that interview? This is not a bash Trump night night, but I'm going to D.C. Sunday to hang out for a week. So maybe, I don't know, I get to apparently meet my senators and hang out with the congressmen. We'll see how that goes. Because <laughs> I'm not impressed with our senators either. Scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents. All right, let's, let's come down. All right, kids. All right, disobedient to their parents. But you know who allowed them to be disobedient? Parents who were too lazy to stay on top of the discipline. Parents who wanted to have best friends. It's weird to be best friends with your teenager. It's weird to be best friends with your little six-year-old. It's weird to be best friends. Now, maybe when they're in their 20s or 30s and you guys have grown and maybe, but not if they're at home and they're still dependents. Disobedient to their parents. He's talking about the last days. Never has there been a generation so disrespectful as the one you and I currently live in called America. It was Leanne Rimes that taught us that we could sue and divorce our parents. And she was country. And that was in the 90s. Whoever thought of a child divorcing their parents? And some of you educators appreciate it, but the parents don't support the educators. The kids get in trouble. The parents defend the kids. And when they get home with the kids, they hate their kids just as much as the, the teachers do. That's a... Meh. And ungrateful. And we, we need to make sure we're not found there. Let's not be unthankful. Let's not be ungrateful. Let's find something to be thankful for in every situation. Now, if, if we're talking about powerless times, perilous times, difficult times, and this is the fruit of it, then by working these things backwards, we can recover power. We can recover strength. So by being grateful, because again, perilous times means days without power. It, by being thankful, we can walk in power. By being obedient, we can walk in power. By worshiping God and not scoffing Him, we can walk in power. By being humble and submitted, we can walk in power. By loving everybody else and not our money, we can walk in power. But if you want to lose power, just punch this list here and watch yourself 
curse. They will consider nothing sacred. Shmini, pull this picture up real quick. They will consider nothing sacred. Got to be the world. Got to be the world. I got a picture here. I just meant to grab it. I did it during worship there. They consider nothing sacred. There's a church in Canada that every Easter crucifies a different pop culture character. So last year, two years ago, now they're Canadian, so they didn't have church for two years because they live in a dictatorship under a moron named Trudeau. That's what happens when you vote a drama teacher into your prime minister. He's facing charges now. He landed overseas high on cocaine and locked himself in a room for two days. And he just hailed a Nazi war hero because he fought against Russia as a German Nazi. So anyway, this is what happens when you vote for a drama teacher to be your prime minister. So anyway, this had to be before COVID. Uh, So here they are. Iron Man represents Jesus. And they crucify Iron Man as part of their Easter play. And I guess that's Loki there with the spear. And apparently while they do this Chumbawamba song, that's an old British group, uh, get knocked down, but I get up again. Uh, This is what they pass as the gospel. They've also crucified Woody from Toy Story. They've also crucified Simba from The Lion King. They just can't do a passion play with the real Jesus. They have to just blaspheme God. Now, it shouldn't shock you that they have, they're one of the biggest churches in Canada and multiple campuses because the world loves their own. All right, take it down. That disgusts me. Nothing is sacred to them is what Paul prophesied. They will consider nothing sacred. Why would we consider the resurrected Savior a crucified man on a cross for the sins of our lives? Why would we consider that sacred? Let's put Tony Stark up there so we can draw the freaks who don't really want God anyway. They will be unloving, verse 3, and unforgiving. We hold grudges like never before, don't we? And you know what we do? I'm going to unfriend you. (laughs) I'm going to block you. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends Be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. The reason church attendance plummets in our nation is because folks love pleasure. Even though their car made it to Sunday morning service, they can't find Sunday night service. And most churches now cancel Sunday night because the church attendance is down. Well, have it for God's sake, not for the people. Just you and God, preacher. You have a service. Get your worship team up there. We don't want to come. Then you're not performing next Sunday. Either show up or I'll just put on gospel tracks and we'll worship God. You know, if you have it, it's almost like Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. If you have it, somebody will show up and God will bless that person who's hungry enough to find God. Since when do shepherds follow sheep? But that's what we're doing in our nation. Shepherds are following sheep because shepherds are insecure. And gosh darn it, we want to be liked. Well, you're in the wrong business if you want to be liked. All of our heroes in the Bible, most of them were killed for following God. They were exalted when they followed people. And they lost their calling and their destiny when they said, well, I feared the people, so I thought I'd obey them. Verse 5, they will act religious. Sounds like Sunday morning seekers. But they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. <laughs> you mean the Bible wants to select your friends? Sure. 
every one of us has something in this previous three verses that we're not proud of. So thankfully, the interpretation for this passage isn't if you find one of these symptoms and one person, cut them off. But I think we understand if we are looking at somebody in our lives, maybe our family, and they're starting to be defined by one or three or four of these, we do have permission to invoke the commandment of Paul and say, move away from them, stay away from them. If that's a church, don't go to that church. If that's a fellowship, don't have fellowship with that. If that's a buddy of yours, you need to find a better buddy. But Paul, listen, we're not up for changing scripture here. If Paul said, stay away from people like that, then we're going to stay away from people like that. I don't want to run with religious people who deny the power thereof. Now, the Greek word there means to repudiate, uh, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. That's what the King James says. Repudiate doesn't mean you deny it like I don't believe in it. It means you divorce it. So you know it's there. And again, this would be seeker churches. I know a couple that are spirit-filled, or at least they used to be. The pastors don't deny the Holy Ghost in private, just in public. So I'm not sure how that's going to sort out for them on Judgment Day because the Holy Ghost is God. And if you deny God, there's some promises somewhere in that Bible when we're not busy crucifying Woody or Simba or Tony Stark to study. There's some promises in there that if you deny Jesus, if you, if you blaspheme the Holy Ghost, there's no hope for you. So I don't want to be a part of a church that knows the power of the Holy Ghost is evident and real but won't demonstrate. I don't want to be a part of a church that says, well, we believe in the laying hands on hands of the sick, but we just don't practice it. I don't want to be a part of that. And Paul agrees. He says, stay away from people like that. Verse 6, they are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women. King James says they lead captive silly women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. So let's stop there, because now he's talking about this group of folks that we want nothing to do with and how they will, some of them, prey on the vulnerable people in the body of Christ. Now, he does call out women, because women tend to be more emotional. You, don't really, you wouldn't ever really identify many men as silly or vulnerable. That's just not how you define men, especially not in the first century. Now, we're getting into weird, weird gender identities now, so I don't know. Maybe you identify as a trans, metro, silly, gender, cis, non-binary pelican. I don't know what you identify as. <laughs> Crazy is what we'd have called you 25 years ago. Retard is what we'd have called you in the 80s and still do a little bit. But he does point out that women tend to be bigger victims to this kind of deception than men do. Uh, they're controlled by various desires. So let's focus on that because as women, you need to make sure, men and men as well, but women, that's the context here. Women, you need to make sure your desires are in check, that you control your desires. They don't control you. So one of those big desires is emotions. All right. We know this. Women are more emotional. Men are more logical. We get married together because we balance each other. Two lesbians, one of them is going to be a bulldog butch. Otherwise, it's not going to be balanced. And even then, we know it's an abomination according to scriptures, and it's not going to work. And even in a gay relationship, you know one of those dudes is what they call a fairy, and he's a lot more emotional than the other. Now, I don't have a problem talking about this because it's the God's honest truth. It's observable anywhere you go. And all it is is their formula or their marriage falling into what God says works. 
though it's not going to work. Women are more emotional. You got to be able to control those appetites, those desires. What about fear and worry? Women are given over to fear and worry more than men are. You got to control those desires. What about food? You got to get a hold of food appetites so that cholesterol doesn't kill you. We want you to walk into heaven. We don't want to roll you there on a wheelchair. Amen. There is a higher standard to aim for. Now listen to me. Okay, I'm 47 now. I have fought very hard my whole life to stay in shape. It serves me well. There are whole spans of time, months that go by that I don't have any issues in my body. Then I'll tweak something working out and it'll take me some time to recover it, but it always recovers. I figure I have, I'm halfway through life. Maybe I have another 50 years left. I expect my body to be healthy. For some of you, it's too late because you did not take care of your body. So unfortunately, without a miracle, you're going to suffer health issues the rest of your life. But it doesn't have to be that way for you younger folks. So if you're like under 30, I would get your body seriously in shape. I would get your health under control. Get your diet under control. Whatever it takes to put a knife to your throat, according to Proverbs, so that you don't destroy your lungs, destroy your heart, destroy your joints, destroy your pancreas, destroy your intestines, destroy your cholesterol, blow out an artery, blow out a carotid, whatever. The older you get, your body, your body is very merciful in its younger years, and you're just deceived into thinking, I can always be this big and this sloppy, and I'll be okay. And it does not happen that way. Things fall apart, and they, you have to start paying very rapidly. Thank God for technology, but I plan to keep my two knees when I make heaven. I plan to keep my two shoulders. I plan to have all my teeth. I plan to have both lungs, both kidneys, same heart. Plan to do all that. I've taught you guys this for 16 years. I harp on it. I get slandered for it. We have a pretty healthy church. Most churches are not as lean as ours is. I have friends that you go to their church and you think, my goodness, is the Fat Albert Convention in town? Because, hey, 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 here they come. Really, I mean, I, I don't... This nation now, we just... Five years ago, I published Fat, Broken, Crazy. In five years, the statistic I quoted jumped 10%. Five years ago, it was 30% obese. Today, it's 40%. Five years. The statistic was just released last week. I told Hannah, save it. We're working on the second edition of Fat, Broken, Crazy. In five years, our nation jumped. That's a 33% increase. We went from 30% obese to 40% as a nation. And... How many sicknesses are obesity-induced? So now we're dealing with a human-induced disease that can be fixed if you'll focus on the fruit called self-control. All right, back to this woman here. She is burdened with the guilt of sin, which means she's got to get a hold of condemnation and controlled by various desires. That means all sorts. Such women are forever following new teachings. Now, I came into the spirit-filled movement during TBN's heyday of the 90s, and I watched this firsthand when all the women who loved Jesus would hawk silverware for the next hack, gimmick, false prophet on TBN. And some of you ladies are still that way in this church right now. 
You've always telling me about one of your favorite preachers. And uh, listen, ask me what I know about your favorite preacher. Just say, give me just like a baseball signal. Like, here's my favorite preacher. Thumbs up if they've been involved in a sex scandal or thumbs down if they're still good. Or how about thumbs up if they're still good, thumbs down if they're bad. And would you still send your money and follow the teachings of someone who's been investigated? One of them got investigated by TBI, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. They quickly made him go off the air for a couple months and then brought him back because he's too much of a cash cow. And in one of his meetings, a lady stood up and said, you're not under persecution. You just can't keep your hands off all these women, sir. And that lady was escorted out by security. So is that somebody you want to study, feed on? No. No. Such women are forever following new teachings, but they are never able to understand the truth. I had a friend like this in college. It was a she. She was kind of a, like a spiritual mama to me. She helped me get spirit-filled. And every time I went to see her, she was following some new teacher on Christian television and had bought all their books, and boy, her life was tracking that way. And at first, I, I didn't know what to make of it. I was a, a baby Christian in a sense that I was really just walking with God for myself for the first time, and I was learning the spirit-filled life and word of faith and charismatic and Pentecostalism and vineyard and whatever. But this went on for several years, and then one time I went to go see her, and now she was Seventh-day Adventist. And I thought, ma'am, you helped me get spirit-filled. You, you brought me to the Vineyard Church, and uh, like, you turned me on to some of these great teachers, and now you're a Seventh-day Adventist because she got to listen to some Seventh-day Adventists, and they convinced her that we need to keep the Sabbath on Saturday. And that's when I realized, this lady's squirrely. And then I found her in this verse. Don't be that way. These teachers oppose the truth just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith. Now, that's the New Living Translation. It inserts the term these teachers. It's not in the original Greek. King James says, Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds. That's in reference to those who have fallen away, those that the Bible says, stay away from such people like this. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith. Now, if you hadn't noticed, Paul's being really judgy. He's calling names, silly women, depraved men hypocrites, mockers. This isn't the modern church movement where we just want grace, grace, grace for everybody. I was talking to a good friend of mine recently, and uh, we were talking about some stuff, and I, I kind of know where he's coming from. He has a very high standard, but he just keeps looking for grace in everything, and he's like, well, well where's the grace in that, brother? Where's the grace in that? And I, I'm trying to figure out, what do you mean? Like, we need, to, we need to have a little meeting about what you mean by grace and what I mean by grace, and then what does God mean by grace? And so we, we were just talking about the great falling away and watching Christians deny Christ and go to hell and maybe not having an opportunity. He said, yeah, God's mercy is new every day, so where, where's the grace in that? And I, I couldn't think quick enough in the moment, and then I had my answer today thinking about him, and I recalled, as Paul said to Titus, the grace of our Savior appeareth to all men, teaching all of us to deny ungodly lusts and sin. So where's the grace in it? It's telling you to be clean. 
and not depraved. There's the grace in it. Or do you mean grace to live dirty and still squeak into heaven? Because that's not the biblical grace. These men have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith. That's pretty harsh for the apostle of grace. But they won't get away with this for long. Someday everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as with Janus and Jambres. Those were the two sorcerers who thought they could hang with Moses and Aaron's rod for a season. He calls them fools. Now, sometimes uh, in this modern era, we want everybody to be praised, but I'm quoting you the words of Holy Scripture, not Andy Stanley's newest apostate book. And he's calling people names, not Andy Stanley, Paul. He's calling people out. He's naming names because he's trying to keep the preacher, young Timothy, clean so that the church will be clean. When the pastor's compromised, the church will be compromised. Churches are a reflection of their leadership. Churches are a reflection of their leadership. Dirty churches are a reflection of dirty leaders. Dirty churches are a reflection of dirty leaders. No church is perfect, but you can score a little higher than a C plus, I think, as a church. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. But you, Timothy, you certainly know what I teach. This is in contrast to the silly woman who's always following something different. You know what I teach. And let me encourage you, church, when you have a pastor that God's assigned you to, you should know what the doctrine is there. And until you've mastered it, I'm all, everybody's got their favorite celebrity preacher, but maybe why? And, and why, why do you like them? Is it because they have the biggest telecast? Is it because everybody is following after them? Is it because they have a New York Times bestseller? Because most of those guys got on the New York Times bestselling through a little unethical, corrupt business dealing called Shadow Corporations, where you start a business not in your name, And that business magically takes some of your ministry money and buys 750,000 copies of your book and then gives them away on your telecast to those that give a love gift offering. And the 750,000 purchases put you on the New York Times bestseller. And then you give away. Is that why they're your favorite preacher? Because they run a racket? It's because they make you feel good. I mean, what, what doctrine are they giving you? Paul says, hey, Timothy, I'm your father in the faith. You know what I teach. You know where I stand on these things. And you know how I live. It's not just how I teach, it's how I live. Because that's more important than how you teach. As, As it's been said before, how you live is so loud, I can't hear what you say. So living is just as important as how you and what you teach. Uh, one of the great theologians, we have a bunch of his books out there. A.W. Tozer was a tremendous theologian in the last century. And his books are deep. They're great. They're poignant. He is, he's quoted often in almost all theological circles. But he died. And they interviewed his wife later. She'd remarried. And they said, tell us something about Tozer. And she said, A.W. Tozer loved Jesus, but my new husband loves me. And that lets you know that as smart as Tozer might have been and as profound as he might have been, he didn't walk it out at home because his wife apparently didn't feel loved. 
And if you don't make your wife feel loved, you're not fulfilling Ephesians 5 and loving your wife as Christ does the church. And I understand how you can become a theologian and a, and a minister and get so sucked up in ministry helping everybody else, you totally forfeit your wife. And so she was happy to remarry to somebody who actually loved her, even though that was a biblical commandment. And Tozer could have been a better Christian had he loved his wife and not just been so smart. He said, you know my life. You know what I teach? You know how I live? You know what my purpose in life is? And this is very important. Every one of you should know why you exist. Now, that's a fancy philosophical thing called existentialism. Why do you exist? Now, it's really easy. You exist to glorify God. But every one of us has a different path. I was called, I was a geologist for 10 years, and then I became a pastor. And Scudder was an engineer and became a missionary. And Bobby was a MIS computer expert and then became a missionary's wife. Well, they were married and she was a wife and then became the missionary's wife. Everybody's got a different path. You know, Pastor Caleb did army stuff and army stuff and now criminal justice stuff, and now he's a pastor. Mr. Gregg's been a lifelong educator and music conductor and helped with schools. Everybody's got a different path, a different race, but our purpose is to glorify Jesus. And what I do find in the younger generation, though it's been in every generation, when until you know what that purpose is, you're just going to flounder around like a fish on a deck, just flopping around until you find that body of water called your destiny. Some people can look at you and tell you what it is, and if you're a moron, you'll go, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, and that's why we say, you are floundering. And I'm not much for fishing unless it's deep sea fishing. But, you know, if you try to pick up those fish, they can fin you and cut you. And so sometimes what you do is you just kick them off the deck, off the boat, off the bank. Sometimes that is pastoring. <laughs> Do you know what your purpose is? Paul did, and it brings so much confidence. When you know I'm in my lane, I'm in my groove, I'm doing what I'm anointed to do, I'm doing what I'm called to do, it clears up so much confusion and so much need for answers. You just wake up every day, do the last thing God told you to do. Do you know your purpose? Because once you find it, it brings so much confidence. He says, you know what my purpose in life is? You know my faith, my patience. You know, my love and my endurance. These are things we should have in our lives. We should have a faith that people can see. We should have a patience, a patient endurance. Long-suffering is the word. It's different than just being able to watch the clock. This is a, I think it's hupothumia in the Greek, to be able to endure while you're in sufferings. And we should have an agapeo, a love and an endurance you know, much persecution and suffering, you know how much persecution and suffering I've endured. And we ought to be able to look to folks who have endured and say, if they can do it, I can do it. Now, again, America, we always, we, we run from anything hostile. We run from anything hard. We quit jobs when they expect a little too much out of us. Uh, we, we don't even rise to the occasion. We always, our life is defined by taking the easiest path at every marker. And when your whole life is defined by taking the easiest option, every time you're given one, your life amounts to nothing. And the gospel calling is one that's upward. 
That is a, a fight mindset that I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to press in. I'm going to endure. I'm going to do the hard thing. Every time you have an option, you should really wait, weightily consider the harder option. Because why not? Why take the easy route? Why take the easy job? Why take the easy trail? Why, why would you do that? Why would you take the easy option? If you're learning music, why take the easy song? If you got to do the martial arts, why wrestle with the featherweight? Go find the biggest guy you can, slap him in the face and say, it's you and me, bucko. <laughs> Where it has it, you're a sissy. And then see what that does for you. <laughs> you can be a giant among pygmies or you can be a giant among even bigger giants. I don't get our mindset anymore. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Not just one place, every place he went. Out of the frying pan into the fire. Out of the fire into the coals. Everywhere he went, he was being persecuted. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. And it's as if he's saying, look, I'm still here, and I'm writing you a letter. And I'm well able, and so are you, so suck it up, boy. <laughs> it was tough, yes, but I'm still here. And it got harder at Lystra, but I'm still here. And God delivered me out of all of it. You don't ever have any testimonies if you don't ever take any tests. And Dr. Barclay says that no test, no testimony. He also says no giant, no champion. So I don't know, what do you get if you're always running away except for a yellow tail? Oh, we can stop. We, we know that behind. It's got the tail tucked. <laughs> Sissified, dainty. Got everything to prove to everybody because you don't stand for nothing. So you become a legend in your own mind because you don't ever do anything to prove nothing. You can, you can complain about proving something and then you can actually just shut up and prove something. Because talk is cheap. <laughs> the Lord rescued me from all of it. Verse 12. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will have it so easy. Get ready, get ready, get ready, get, get ready for your best day ever. Your blessing is coming. Oh, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. It's going to get easy, going to get easy, going to get easy. That's TBN. It isn't Pauline. So let's read the words of the Holy Ghost, not a gimmick. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That means if you're going to push against the flow, or push against the grain, it's going to be tough. But it's going to make you better. Right? What the kingdom needs is more soldiers, more stalwarts, more, more those that can take a rebuke, more those that can take the opposition, more those that say, give it to me, I'll put it in my backpack, I'll carry it for you. If you're a freeloader, always looking to get stuff off of your life, you're going to have these weak little sissy legs. But you've got to look for the opportunity to carry more load. The Bible says the love of Christ calls us to bear one another's burdens. That means more weight. But the more weight you carry, the stronger you get. I've been watching World, Rug uh, World Cup rugby this week. I watched Uruguay beat Namibia. I was expecting a bunch of blacks on the Namibian national team. And apparently I don't know nothing about Southern Africa turns out that Namibia has the third largest white population in Africa. 
So the team was mostly whites. And then Uruguay, of course, is Uruguay. You know, that's the color they are. It's in that Crayola box, the big one. Well, watching world-class rugby, Dan came over Saturday because he played rugby in South Africa. He's teaching me the rules because other it just looks like a smear the queer is all it looks like, just like. That's what we called it. Not smear the homosexual, queer, the oddball out, whoever had the ball, come on. why we study words around here. I look at those guys playing rugby. They're big as a house. And their legs, every one of their legs, they, they put American football players to shame. The whole team would. Even the smallest guy out there play linebacker and just shame our NFL. But I think about how much weight do they have to lift in between matches. The, the, their, their thighs are as bigger than my chest. And so much force but those aren't the guys that skip leg day. They don't skip no day. Like if they found a muscle, they're going to work it out. Anyway, my point is these guys are the world's best. They're not like NBA players or the soccer players that flop. These guys, they have an ear half torn off and they tape it. Their fingers are broken sideways. They just straighten it, tape it. Blood coming out of everything, nose is crooked, and they're back in the scrum doing whatever they scrum do. You can be that or you can be a pencil pusher. We want to make sure that we bear one of those burdens and we carry things heavily. You're going to suffer persecution. Because, verse 13, again, this isn't really a seeker-friendly Joel Osteen kind of passage. I'm not sure if he even reads these passages because I don't know how you church it up and smile at it. I don't know. Evil people and imposters will flourish. There's a Bible promise. Evil people will flourish. Imposters, that's false Christians, will flourish. King James says, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. So why do we have to be prepared to suffer persecution? Because the Bible's prophetic word says it's going to get worse. You can't rebuke the prophecies of the Holy Spirit. All we can do is prepare for it and make sure that we are clean, make sure we're holy. They will flourish. We don't want them to, but weeds flourish, and you don't want them to. They just naturally flourish. Verse 14, but you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. Now, here's where we go back to the ark from the very first, A-R-C, not A-R-K, but the ark from 1 Timothy, where Paul keeps telling Timothy about all their preaching buddies that have failed, and they've shipwrecked their faith. Therefore, pray, Timothy. Contend, Timothy. Don't give up, Timothy. Don't be ashamed, Timothy. He says, you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. Now, for me, that means I'm faithful to the Baptist foundation I was given growing up. And then I came in in the Word of Faith movement. And then God gave me Lester Sumrall's ministry. And now I'm under Dr. Barclay's ministry. These are all the things God has invested in me. Why would I change lanes now when they have built my life, given me this, whatever my measure of success is, they've given it to me. Why would I stop now? Why would I start denying the Holy Ghost now? 
I got spirit-filled and spoke in tongues at 19 because I wanted more of God, and I discovered there was a third person of the Godhead, and he wasn't just some stained-glass dove we bragged about. He was a real person. That praying in tongues changed my life, pulled me out of weird places, put me in grand places. Why would I all of a sudden go stupid now and deny the Holy Ghost and the baptism and say, well, you know, I guess I've just been like, you know, in some kind of weird stupor for 30 years. You can't make up praying in tongues for three hours at a time. My children pray in tongues. Ten-year-old minds, eight-year-old minds, they're not, my kids, my girls got spirit-filled at like five, and they would pray in tongues. You can't, they're barely working on English, and here they are praying in tongues. You've got to know the things you've been taught. Holiness, purity, tithing, evangelism, Bible study, faithfulness, ministry of helps, work ethic. Cling to these things. They're what make you. How about church attendance? Yeah, that's not hard. How about submission to whoever's in charge of your life, whether it's your teacher, your professor, your boss, the cop who pulls you over? You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. Now, maybe this is the time to question it. Maybe you think back, well, not real sure who taught me. But I trust the Baptist pastors who invested in my life. Those were holy men. They went to seminary. They were committed to God. They pastored huge churches, and it wasn't easy. And then Pastor Vaughn, he lived for our church. He invested in us. He taught three and four services a week, rebuked us, didn't care if we left. He's going to stay faithful to God. And then my pastor Darren, and then my pastor Trey, and then, then now Dr. Barclay. Hopefully you have somebody in your life you can trust. You know what you've been taught is true. Now, that doesn't mean all of our doctrine's perfect. We're always tweaking stuff. But it really does bug me when folks get hung up on the minors while omitting the majors. Now, we can discuss the minors if you've already perfected the majors. Like, let's debate the minors all day long if I can see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. But don't come and debate me on tongues or debate me on water baptism if you're fornicating, looking at porn, and huffing paint. Like, you don't qualify to talk to me. You got a lot of silver on this nostril. You must have run out because that one's yellow. <laughs> I mean, you're huffing glue and you want to debate me. <laughs> yeah. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. Thankfully, I have. My parents raised me in church, and I'm thankful for it. And they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. A point worth noting is that the scriptures Paul is referring to is the Old Testament. From Genesis to Malachi, the Tanakh, as the Jews called it, the Old Testament Bible, that was enough to get Timothy born again, to find the salvation that's in Christ. Then he changes up. All scripture, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us, what, uh, make us realize what is wrong in our lives. Now, I heard one famous megachurch preacher say, we don't use the word sin or repent in our sermons because it makes people uncomfortable. So I think he just wants hell to be a rude awakening for them. Can you imagine the cowardice of a mega preacher? To admit, I mean, it's one thing if you do it, just don't admit to it. I mean, if you're going to be a coward Christ denier, just don't admit to it. But he said, we don't use the word sin. We don't use the word repent. 
because it makes, actually I think he said, we call those owie words, or those are owie words. They make people hurt. I don't even know what he preaches, because this verse says, I'll read it to you in King James if that sounds a little fancier to you. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. So doctrine is the first thing we use scripture for. And then what do we use scripture for? To correct, to reprove, for correction, for instruction. I like the next part in the NLT. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Now, Pastor Vaughn told a story years ago. He was actually teaching on the concept that the Bible's a hope book. It's a hope chest. And, and there's all these promises that give you hope. And you open the Bible and it gives you hope. And it opens the Bible and shows you who you are in Christ. But he said he had the man, this man come to him and say, I'm sorry, Pastor Vaughn, I just can't read the Bible. It condemns me. And Pastor Vaughn said that he struggled with that because he thought, I read the Bible. It doesn't condemn me. It corrects me. And then I fix it. But I don't find the Bible condemning. And it bothered him. Because the man refused to read the Bible because when he read it, it would condemn him. And he was praying about it, and he, he was trying to figure out the answer. And the Lord finally he said, spoke to him and said, the reason he can, it condemns him is because he reads it, I show him what to do, and he refuses to obey. Yeah. Yeah. So then that really wouldn't be condemnation so much as it would be conviction. Yes, yes, you ought to be able to read the Bible. Yes. And when it corrects you, you say, praise God. I'm telling you, we are teaching our kids to love judgment. Yes, sir. And our kids use that terminology because I refuse. Our, I don't want our kids to be this modern generation that is afraid to even. Right. Yeah. I don't know. So I'll tell my kids, uh, go clean your room up and let me know when you're ready to judge, for me to judge you. And we, we just use these terms. All right, Dad, can you come judge me? Yeah. Absolutely. Because they know there's also rewards. If I judge it and it's clean enough, we go have fun. So please come judge me. How was that, Dad? Pretty good. Let's fix this. How was that? Not good enough. Let's do better. There's no condemnation. There's only correction. What's wrong with us when we don't want God to tweak us? I mean, none of us think our lives are perfect. But wouldn't it be better if our lives were better? So maybe you've climaxed, and this is as far as you come. The only way you're going to get better is to let somebody point at something and say, hey, have you considered maybe not that? Oh, that's judgy. Fine, suffer. That's even more judgy. Well, make up your mind. What are you doing? You're putting pressure on me. All right, let me call my doctor. You need a therapist and a rubber room. <laughs> The Word of God is designed to correct us. Let me read this in the NLT again. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong. So you mean there might be something wrong in your life? Maybe? Oh, couldn't be. Your life is perfect. Your marriage is perfect. Your children are perfect. Your money's perfect. Your health is perfect. Your mental life is perfect. No, 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 and no. Which means maybe there's room for help. And if you get a little bit of help, won't that help a little? 
might, might help be contagious, might help be con, uh, make addictive. I think we ought to be humble enough to let the Word of God to correct us. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Verse 17, last verse. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. God uses His Word to prepare and equip. If you don't submit to the Word, you can't be prepared and you can't be equipped. So Christians who don't go to church are not prepared, they're not equipped. Christians who don't read their Bible are not prepared, they're not equipped. God's Word prepares us and equips us to do every good work. Now, why do people go to the big seeker flop houses? Because there's no confrontation. There's no deep doctrine. There's some kind of disconnect between any scripture that's read and any application. Dirty churches reflect the leadership behind the scenes. If you go to a church and this guy smells like booze and that guy smells like booze, now granted, let them be new people. They let them come in smelling like they crawled out of a ditch at Lollapalooza. Yes, but you still smell like that in five years? What's wrong with that church? Either you got cleaned up or you left. And then, you know that couple is still shacking up and those folks are, and those lesbians over there are door greeters. What's wrong with that church? This is the holy house of God. Come as you are, but we're going to change you by the word of God. Same with any college group. Same with any youth group. Sin must be dealt with if we're going to follow biblical patterns. Otherwise, we're not a church anymore. We need to make sure we exalt the Word of God above anything and everything because it alone equips us and prepares us to do the work of God. Amen.